Hey folks, we're going to go ahead and get started here for the evening. Good evening, I'm Father David and I'm a priest here at the Oratory. And, uh, welcome to the School of St. Philip Neri. And uh, what we hope to do throughout the course of this year is to introduce you a little bit to the person of Philip Neri and also his spirituality. Philip remains to this day to be a wonderful uh, spiritual guide and counselor. And we're coming up on the 500th year of his birthday, anniversary of his birthday. So this is a very special year for us as oratorians. And what I want to do here uh, for the flow of the group this evening is to, uh, we'll begin with a hymn as usual, uh, as Philip's gatherings often began. And then a little reading from the life of St. Philip Neri. Uh, just to give you a, a sense of his personality, his character, his sense of humor. And uh, the reading that we're doing this evening is from one of his early biographers named Bocci. Uh, the theme for the evening is mortification, which seemed appropriate for, for Lent. And it's both interior and ex exterior mortification. So exterior the bodily penances such as fasting, vigils, and then interior the way that we seek to overcome our own will, understanding, and in order to give ourselves more fully over to the will of God. And Philip was very much in line, certainly, with the great teachers of spirituality, uh, but he brought his own unique uh, spirit to these, as you'll hear in the reading that Brother Jonathan is going to do for us here this evening. And uh, I always think it's a little easier to sing when you're standing than sitting. Our opening hymn is Come Down, O Love Divine. O God, come to our assistance. O Lord, make haste to help us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Come down, O love divine. Seek thou this So the 
Spirit makes his dwelling. Please be seated. In the reading uh, within your program this evening, we'll be looking at uh, how Philip approached both exterior and interior mortification. Uh, but the reading that Brother Jonathan is going to do for us this evening will, will show us how he applied this to those who were his disciples. The title is, Of the Mortifications with Which Philip Exercised His, exercised his Spiritual Children. Philip, as we have many times remarked already, was as anxious for the spiritual advancement of those beneath his care as he was for his own. And one of the most constant exercises in which he occupied them was that of mortification. It would fill a whole book if I were to enumerate the different acts of mortification in which he tried him. It will be enough to mention a few of his most ordinary devices in that way. He used repeatedly to send his penitents, even though they were noble and distinguished persons, to ask alms at the church doors, where there was the greatest concourse of people. Neither did he allow them to have their faces covered as the Sakoni have, so that they might not be known. He made them sweep the steps and street in front of the churches, and then carry the sweepings away. He ordered them to beg at sermons, a thing which was not usual in those times, and was considered disgraceful. When he built the rooms at San Geralimo, he made his penitents carry a good part of the materials, like common masons' laborers. At other times, he sent them to private houses to beg morsels of bread for the love of God, and he once ordered one of his spiritual children, who had got a new coat on and took a vain pleasure in his fine clothes, to go to the door of Santa Maria Maggiore to ask alms, forbidding him to eat anything that day but what was given him out of charity. And he sent them, and he sent, then sent others on purpose to tease and mock him. <laughs> Sometimes he sent them to the choir of the Dominicans to hear Compline and ordered them to be at full length, like corpses on some benches, until the Salve Regina was finished. He had also a great many pairs of spectacles, although he very seldom used them any at all. And he would sometimes put on one pair on one person, another on another, especially if they were boys, and order them to go and do several things with the spectacles on. The inventions of this sort, which he hit upon, were almost numberless. But the end of all of them was to keep his spiritual children humble and make them regardless of what others said or thought of them. He made Father Francesco Bozzi lie flat on his face in church in front of his confessional in the morning while his penitents came to confession, and he kept them there for a considerable space of time. Another morning he did the same to Giovanni Battista Ligera, a priest who was given to low spirits and scrupulosity. Anna Borromeo, who was also plagued by scruples, having confessed to the saint one morning, came back presently afterwards to confess over again. Philip mortified her publicly in the church in the presence of several persons by driving her away without hearing her confession and reproaching her in a loud tone of voice. The lady, without changing countenance, turned modestly away and left the church without making an answer in self-defense. Another time, he sent a young man to ring a bell through the Campo de Fiore and the street the Gubernari, most populous places, in the most inhabited part of Rome. The artisans, attracted by the unusual sound, took him for a madman and hissed him. Another time, he sent one of his penitents through Rome with a great box lid fastened to his shoulders, on which was written in great letters, for having eaten curds and whey. 
<laughs> One day, Philip went with several of his penitents to visit Cardinal Alejandrino, and before taking leave, he said to the Cardinal, Monsignor, I wish you would give me something for these children of mine. The Cardinal, who understood the saint thoroughly, knew very well that he was seeking an opportunity to mortify them, upon which he went immediately to a cupboard and took out a large cake and gave it to him. Philip thanked him, saying, This is just what I wanted. And as soon as they got out of the palace, he broke the cake into several pieces and gave a piece to each of them, ordering them all to begin eating. And so they went through the streets of Rome, all munching the cake together, as if they were keeping time one with the other. One of his penitents, wishing to leave off the toupee, as was usual in those times, the saint would not only not allow him to do so, but commanded him to have it trimmed. And to mortify him still further, he told him to go to Fra Felice, the Capuchin, and that he would have the charity to dress his hair for him. The good penitent went accordingly, and Fra Felice, who was in league with the saint, instead of trimming him, shaved the whole of his head, which he bore with the most patient good humor. Another of his penitents, called Alberto Legnaiolo, <laughs> Alberto Legnaiolo, asked the saint's leave to wear a hair shirt. The saint said, by all means, but on condition you wear it outside your gown. <laughs> The penitent readily obeyed and wore it in this way till his death, so that people nicknamed him Berto of the hair shirt. <laughs> One of the most influential people at court had a dog, which he petted immensely, caressing it in the most extraordinary way, as he had quite a passion for animals. It happened that one morning a gentleman brought this dog with him to San Geronimo, and Philip, beginning to caress it, the dog took such a fancy to him that it would not leave his rooms. Although the saint set it back to its master time after time. At first, the master of the animal was very much displeased at this, so he petted the dog more than ever to hinder it from running away, and even kept it tied for some days. At last, seeing that it always ran off to San Girolamo as soon as it was let loose, although Philip had nothing to give it but a bit of bread, he was quite struck with the animal's attachment to the saint, and said laughingly, in allusion to some of his gentlemen who by Philip's persuasion had left the court in order to serve God more perfectly. Father Philip is not content with taking men from me, but he must needs take even my animals away. <laughs> the Holy Father made great use of this dog in mortifying his spiritual children. Although it was very large, he made some of his penitents, even men of rank, carry it in their arms through the streets. He sent others to wash and comb it, and others to lead it tied with a chain or cord through Rome, when he himself went out walking, so that it served to mortify Philip himself, as well as those who led it, for the dog was always trying to get ahead and dragging his leaders after him, so that they looked like so many blind men led by a dog. <laughs> the various mortifications in which this dog played its part lasted for 14 years, and they were so burdensome that Cardinal Teruji used to call the animal the cruel scourge of human minds. It would never, <laughs> it would never leave Philip and died in his room at last. <laughs> For the same end, that is, to serve as an occasion for mortifications, he left a cat at San Gerolamo when he went to live at the Valicella, and for six years together he sent some of his people every day to look after her, and also to go to the shambles to buy meat for her. And when they came back, even though cardinals, prelates, or nobles were present, he always asked after the cat whether they had made her comfortable, how she was, if she had eaten cheerfully, with many other minute questions, as if it had been a matter of the greatest importance. <laughs> When Cesaro Baronius first fell into his hands, he set to work training him in a disregarding contempt of himself, 
and men's opinion of him. And for this purpose, he used often to send him to the public house with a bottle large enough to hold more than six mugs full, and then he bade him ask for a half a pint of wine to put in this huge bottle. But that, first of all, they were to wash the bottle out, and then he was, then he was to insist upon going into the cellar to see it drawn himself. And sometimes he was to ask them to give him change for a tester, and sometimes for a gold crown. And when Baronius began to put into execution all these precautions, the publicans, thinking he was making game of them, abused him lustily, and often threatened to give him a sound thrashing. When Baronius was a priest and lived at the San Giovanni de Fiorentini, Philip used to often make him carry the cross before the dead bodies through the streets by way of mortification. He made several go about with a beretta of white cloth upon their heads, and others with a huge hat and a cord passing under the chin after the antique fashion. On others, he put a large rosary, like a hermit's, round their neck, and made them go to the church in that costume. And on others, he put beards of taffety and gold lace. He often made Fra Pietro Consolini wear purple taffety with threads of gold round his hat, and made him walk about Rome with it. And he repeatedly sent Giuliano... Magaluffi into the refectory during supper with a monkey shouldering a gun and with a beretta on his head, <laughs> commanding him to walk about the refectory in that way. Thus he gave one mortification to one person and another to another as he judged expedient, continually repeating, My children, mortify yourselves in little things that you may the more easily be able to mortify yourselves in great ones afterwards. Neither can we in this matter think it less than wonderful that Philip never laid a mortification on anyone, however extravagant it might be, without its being willingly accepted, or without its producing the fruit in the penitent soul at which the saint was aiming. In fact, he knew who were capable of bearing such burdens and who were not. There were some who were thirty or forty years with him, and yet he never gave them one single mortification in deed or word. Others had scarcely come under him before he began to impose the most extravagant things upon them. But he had not only the gift of discerning those who were capable of submitting to mortifications, but also the nature of the mortifications to which they would submit, and in what degree of virtue they were at the time. And so he dealt with them as they could bear it, mortifying them or not, as he thought best. To some he gave very severe mortifications, to other moderate ones, to others very little ones, according as he saw good for them, making it a great point that they should submit with alacrity. You could see, sort of see what Philip emphasized in the life of mortification. It was more the internal mortifications that would have a tendency to, to humble a person. Uh, as we'll see, though, it's not as though Philip neglected the ex external mortifications. He knew that these were necessary for any kind of real growth in, in the spiritual life. Uh, even though it's appropriate for us to talk about this during Lent, it's not a favored subject. Uh, in fact, I'm surprised there are so many people here to talk about mortification, which simply means to, to die, uh, to put to death something within us that might be contrary to God, most of all our own willfulness, our own sinfulness. And it's similar to asceticism in the sense that not many find it to be an attractive topic or maybe think that it's something that's limited to those holy souls or to religious rather than be something that is meant for all of us as Christians. There's uh, one young woman at uh, our study group here on Wednesday night on St. John Cassian, 
At one point, uh, she said in the group, Father, I'll just never be an ascetic. And I had to say to her, yes, you will. And yes, you are. Because asceticism is not uh, simply a religious kind of disposition or practice. It's a human one. And we engage in asceticism in every single area of our life. Asceticism simply means to exercise. And so for religious people, men and women of faith, asceticism would be to exercise our faith, exercise a kind of discipline that is going to help us grow and deepen in that faith, or to overcome our, our passions, our willfulness, to order our appetites. And so it's not something that just religious w would do, it's something that all of us would be called to do. As I said, we do it in every aspect of our life. If you're a student, there's a kind of asceticism that goes along with that. You go to class, you do a certain amount of study each day, you do your homework. Athletes are great ascetics. They have to watch their diet, they study plays, they, they practice every single day, they lift weights in the off-season. And so they are very disciplined in that. But for some reason, when it comes to the religious life, the spiritual life, we think that it should come spontaneously, without effort, that somehow that it should arise out of our faith naturally from our heart, rather than being a discipline that we would seek to develop and allow to grow over time. There's one author, Michael Casey, who says that asceticism should be something that grows and deepens in a community and among Christians over time. Not in the sense that we would take on more and more disciplines throughout the course of our life, but the way that we would practice those disciplines would be perfected and refined over time. We would see the things that we struggle with in a clearer way, and so would em embrace the disciplines that we need in order to give ourselves over more fully to God, to grow in the virtues that we need to grow in and to overcome the vices that tend to plague us. Philip was very much in line with this vision of things. We've mentioned here in previous groups that uh, he had a great affinity for the writings of the Desert Fathers, and so he knew very well the ascetic discipline and what it meant to mortify oneself. But he also, I think, picked up from them, as you can see in the reading that Brother Jonathan did, that it's most important to, to mortify our understanding, our reason, that even in our ascetic practices like fasting, vigils, even the kinds of prayers that we choose to do on our own could be very much self-oriented. We can take these up in a willful way. It could give us a sense of a, a strong religious identity, but not ultimately be something that leads to a kind of freedom from, from the vices, say, of freedom from pride. And Philip knew this very well. He, uh, he was very disciplined, as we had talked about the last time we met, fasted, very, ate very little throughout the course of the day, prayed all night long, many times in the catacombs of Rome. But he could also be very measured in the disciplines that he gave out to others, and knew their personalities so well that he could give the mortification that was necessary, whether bodily or, as we heard in the reading, uh, the kind that would mortify their, their sense of self-esteem, even to making them wear a hair shirt, hair, hair shirt on the outside of their clothing. And so what I want to do with you here in the reading that's in the program uh, is just to 
give you a little outline of how Philip approached both of these these things, in exterior mortification first, and then more importantly, interior mortification. The print in red is just my uh, introductory material, and it's all pretty straightforward, so I think we'll be able to go through it uh, fairly briefly. As members of the secular oratory and students of the school of St. Philip Neri, we find in our holy patron the greatest of spiritual guides. Though living in the midst of the city of Rome, St. Philip embodied the ascetic discipline of the Desert Fathers and shared their understanding of the human person and the need to control the appetites and transform the passions. We have studied, he, having studied the writings of St. John Cassian and St. John Climacus and put into practice their teachings from his youth, Philip became an adept spiritual guide for his disciples and remains so for those who look to his example and seek his counsel today. And it's been interesting over this past two or three years we've been studying the writings of both Climacus and Cassian and you can see the contours of their spirituality in Philip Neri, although unique to him because he brought that spirit of joy to it. He was able to guide uh, his disciples in the spiritual life without it becoming something that was oppressive, that there was a kind of joyfulness even in the humbling that took, took place in their lives. Exterior mortification, the chastening of the body through fasting, vigils, and other bodily penances is absolutely necessary for making progress in holiness. We must control our appetites and humble the body. This Philip did throughout the entirety of his life, even into old age. He warned that we must not pamper the body, and to those who questioned the practice, Philip reminded in no uncertain terms, heaven is not for cowards. So I think the image of Philip Neri is often one of a practical joker, which he certainly could be. But he did have a very clear sense of what it did take to overcome the passions and to have them transformed by the grace of God. He knew very well what it took to order the appetites. That because of our sin, these things are often unrestrained. And it's only through embracing uh, disciplines such as, as fasting that we learn how to uh, order those appetites in the way that God intended them to be for, for us or to see within them the greater desire for God. So fasting, for example, we would limit our uh, daily intake of food. And in that bodily hunger, we would begin to see more and more, especially when it's tied to prayer, we would see in that bodily hunger our hunger and desire for God. And that would be true of all of our hunger, hungers and desires as human beings, especially when it is connected to, to our prayer, where we come to see more and more that it's God alone who can satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. So asceticism and mortification aren't negative realities for us. It's not a negative view of the human person where we're, we are simply punishing ourselves for the sake of punishing ourselves. It's not a kind of uh, masochism. It's rather rooted in love for God that we realize that we have to bring these appetites, these passions into a kind of order so that they can be directed towards what is good and ultimately towards God. 
However, while exterior mortification is necessary, Philip also counseled that it should be practiced discreetly and only with the permission of one's confessor. One should not trust in private judgment in this regard for danger of falling into pride or injuring one's health. There, we can become enamored, I think, when we hear the stories of, of the great saints and the disciplines that they would take upon themselves. And there's always this danger to want to emulate them and perhaps leap up the ladder, if you will, of holiness in one single bound. And so there's always the danger of falling into a kind of pride and taking too much upon ourselves. And Philip knew that this could uh, eventually endanger a person, not only spiritually, but physically. He had even some of his own men who, in disobedience, went and did things in contrary to his will, like the practice of vigils, which is breaking the night in order to get up to pray, breaking the night's sleep. And he had one of his disciples who wanted to do this all the time. And Philip, being astute, could see his vulnerability in terms of his, his natural constitution. And the person went and did it anyways, and ended up hurting himself to the point that he, he wasn't able even to embrace the basic disciplines of the common life for six months to time. And so Philip knew well that there was a kind of danger there if we, could, if we fall into extremes. And this is always, I think, something that existed within the life of the church. We see in the Desert Fathers, those who became deluded and throw themselves off of a cliff because they believe that that God is going to send his angels to protect them, or that somehow that they could subsist without food and neglect the body altogether. And so again, end up either killing themselves or, or endangering their health, health in great way. So, so Philip knew this very well, both through practice, personal experience, but through his own obedience. I think there's so much said about Philip as being a great teacher, many probably don't realize that he had his own spiritual director and his own confessor who undoubtedly guided and directed him. In fact, it's his confessor that keeps him in Rome. Philip had this strong desire uh, to be a missionary, to become a Jesuit, to go off to the Indies uh, to preach the gospel. And it was only through the counsel of his spiritual director, his confessor, that he's told, no, you, you stay in Rome. This is your mission field. This is where you need to evangelize. And so he remains in Rome throughout the course of his, of his entire life. But we see the fruit of that. The being there 30, 40, 50 years, he could work with the same people day in and day out, come to know them very well, and so become the best of spiritual, spiritual guides for them, not imposing indiscriminately on individuals certain spiritual disciplines, but really what suited their character, their personality, their strengths, as well as their, their weaknesses. And then just one little final paragraph here. Furthermore, as necessary as such exterior mortifications may be, they are only a prelude to, and of secondary importance to, interior mortification, which involves the subjugating of the will and understanding. Often the most difficult mortifications involve remaining silent when criticized and not making excuses when judged harshly, accepting work that is repugnant to us and not seeking the praise of others or avoiding seeming the fool in their eyes. And this is where I think Philip was a tremendous 
teacher. He, kn he knows that these are the things that typically will cut us to the quick. That when we are accused of something that we didn't do, or when we tell a joke at a dinner party and it falls flat and we're humiliated in everybody's eyes, that uh, we can embrace that without, without becoming distraught or despondent. And community life is perhaps, and I would imagine marriage too, <laughs> the smallest community life is probably harder there, but is the greatest form of mortification for that reason. And we live with people who know us the best. And so they also have the capacity to mortify us in the greatest way because they can push the buttons that really will set us off. And so it's typically the family life, marriage, the common life that is the, the quickest road to sanctity. It's what cuts off the, the rough edges in our lives. And it's precisely because those things that we're mortified with don't come through our own will that they work so quickly on us. Obedience typically is the quickest path to sanctification because we have to let go of our own will. So anything so far on the introductory material or what Brother Jonathan read? Any questions about mortification or its meaning? Why don't we go into the text itself. This text is taken from a book called The School of St. Philip Neri, and uh, published by, written by an Italian author and then translated by Father Faber, who was the superior of the London Oratory, back in the time of Newman. On exterior mortification. Bodily mortification is greatly needed by everyone who desires to make progress in perfection. St. Philip, therefore, speaking of this mortification, says that exterior mortifications greatly assist in the acquisition of such as our interior and other virtues, and that without mortification we can do nothing. Therefore, let him who desires to be faithful follower of the saint know that he ought to practice according to the examples and instructions of the Holy Master. So, we begin with the ex exterior mortifications. This is where we begin to control our will on the most basic level with our appetites. So the amount that we sleep, the amount that we eat, these are things that we can more easily control. And it's here that we begin to develop a greater kind of self-will in the spiritual life. So it's not an end in itself, and in fact the interior mortification is greater, but nonetheless this is absolutely necessary. And unfortunately, I think within the life of the church, this is something that has perhaps been lost over the last 50 years. Part of the council was, uh, it's, part of the council's teaching was for us to go back to the sources to do something like this, to deepen our understanding of why we would take up these practices in our lives. And I think what we've seen is a, a gradual loss of them in the spiritual life of, of many Catholics. And so I think in, in many ways we want to try to, to take these up again. And Philip, I think, is a great counsel and guide for us in that regard because he does tend to avoid the, the extremes. He must not feed his body delicately. He would imitate, if he would imitate St. Philip, who sharply chastises, disciplining himself almost every day. 
We must never easily indulge in the use of delicacies, either on account of age from uh, any other cause, but be incited by the example of our holy master, who notwithstanding, I think that's supposed to be spelled with a T, decrepit age, so augmented his abstinences and macerated still more his worn out body that in the last years of his life it had become so shriveled that nothing seemed left but skin and bone. But when someone said that he should consider his decrepitude, the holy man replied, paradise is not made for cowards. So, not giving over to delicacies. I think that that's a hard thing in our culture because everything tells us to reach out for the delicacies. That which is richer, that which tastes better, that's how things are marketed for us. And when you walk into our grocery stores, we're uh, presented with so many things to choose from that the idea of simplifying our, our diet of the, those things that are rich might not even come to mind, except perhaps during the season of Lent. And then even on uh, Ash Wednesday or Good Friday or all the Fridays of Lent, we might eat this very tasty f fish or, or lobster. And I think Philip would warn us that we, we don't want to be overly delicate with the body. We don't want to pamper it. More, more often than not, we can push ourselves further than we imagine. And Philip, along the lines of the Desert Fathers, knew not to stretch it beyond a certain period of time. They would never fast longer than a 24-hour period, and so it's not to weaken the body. And he would counsel the, the same thing, that we don't want to weaken ourselves to such an extent that we find it even difficult to do our work or to pray. But nonetheless, we don't want to pamper our bodies where our prayer becomes weak that we don't develop that hunger and thirst for God. And so I think recapturing the sense that asceticism or mortification should be a regular part of our spiritual life, not just during the season of Lent, but something that we would practice year in and year out, except certainly during the Easter season when we would lighten it, but we would never wholly let go of it, that there's no standing still, as it were, in the spiritual life. We always have to be striving and watchful of our appetites or our passions so they don't lead us in a way that would be contrary to God's will. So I think in some way trying to make all of these practices something regular for us. In the past, you know, the, the Friday abstinence was, you know, it's still required of us, but it was practiced with far greater rigor. And fasting would often be done on Wednesdays and and Fridays and uh, other spiritual practices uh, would you know, take place within the, the church on other days of the week other than Sunday. And I think we've sort of limited things to going to Mass perhaps, but often during the week we can become less and less mindful of what's going on in our minds and our hearts and involving the full self, the body. We don't struggle in the spiritual life only in our minds but involving this absolutely essential part of who we are, our bodily body in that struggle becomes very important. This is why we would kneel at Mass, or why we would use incense, or why there would be prostrations in, say, the Eastern rites, that we want to involve our whole self as we engage in our, our prayer life. 
And so to ne neglect this part of who we are as human beings is really to hobble ourselves in our spiritual growth. If we make our spiritual life only an intellectual reality, we make our faith life only something that's in our minds rather than involving the whole, whole self and body. Any comments at this point? Concerns? Anxieties? As long as you don't overdo it on the incense. That's right. I've seen a couple people go down. Yeah, my first, my we were I wasn't brought up Catholic, and but they used to always take us. Would relatives would take us to Catholic Easter Mass, and my sister had had already had her <laughs> chocolate in the morning, and it was her first whiff of incense, and my poor uncle was walking her up the aisle, and she threw up down his arm, coat sleeve. It's one of those things you never live down. She received. And it was both an external and internal mortification for <laughs> at the age of six years old. <laughs> Don't tell her I told you that. <laughs> okay, last paragraph here on this page. We must try to conceal our penances after the example of our Holy Master who changed the conversation when anyone spoke to him of his rigorous disciplines, which they thought too severe, and turned it into another channel. And so, you know, Philip understood the importance of hiddenness in the spiritual life. That when we take up certain disciplines, we don't want to be talking about them with others in an open fashion. And there are a number of reasons for that. One would be pride, of course, that we would be running around telling everybody, gee, you know, this Lent, I'm doing this, and, or I'm keeping this many holy hours. But we also open ourselves up to another kind of attack, an external attack from the devil himself, that we can be led into temptation when there's our, our pattern in the spiritual life, the things that we are thinking, struggling with, and the disciplines that we are taking up, all of those can be means through which we can be led into sin. And so we want to be kind of guarded in the spiritual life. And it's also because the interior life is something precious and intimate that one would only share with God, that husband and wife don't share the most intimate details of their relationship with each other. It's, it's between the two of them. And the same is true in our relationship with God. He might draw us more and more deeply into the spiritual life and into the life of prayer. But this isn't something that we would want to go around talking about. Uh, Philip's uh, great motto in this regard was, Secretum meo mihi, my secret is my own. That whenever he was asked, not only about his spiritual disciplines, but the mystical experience that, uh, that he had in particular in the catacombs of Rome, that he would never talk about these these things openly, uh, for the dangers I think that I that I mentioned. And again, this is uh, a very difficult thing in our day and age. We're formed from uh, an early age to talk about everything, and that somehow if you're more restrained or guarded, you're repressed, or that there's something wrong with you. And now people are publish everything openly uh, in the social media about their internal life. It's like a, an online journal of what they're doing from moment to moment, and that includes the spiritual life. Uh, 
The most recent thing is people posting pictures of themselves with ashes on their forehead on Ash Wednesday, uh, doing a selfie, which seems to be contrary to the, the whole purpose of embracing the ashes, which is a negative sign of our mortality. Remember, you are dust, and everybody has this big smile with ashes <laughs> on their forehead. So even spiritually, it doesn't make much sense to do, do such things. And so I think getting back uh, to the sense that not that we refrain from talking about our faith, certainly, or even talking about the spiritual life with others, but that we have a kind of self-restraint there, that we aren't revealing the most intimate details of our, of our lives to others, excluding certainly those who are closest to us or our spiritual director or professor. Any thoughts about yes? Isn't that in line with what Jesus said when he said about don't fast like the pagans do, looking, you know, like you're fasting? But, you know, yeah, perfect example. Them. You know, that's the gospel that's given to us to read at the beginning of Lent, and when we receive the ashes. You know, when you're fasting, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, but wash your face, you know, clothe yourself, you know, in, you know, clean garments, and so don't put on uh, an act for people. And Jesus does something interesting there. He says, they, I tell you, they have their reward. They've received, and the fuller translation, translation is, they have their reward in full. So in coming to be known as a disciplined person through having people see them fast, that's their reward. They get this reputation for being spiritual people, but Jesus says that's all they get. Rather, it's to be done in some, uh, something in secret that the Heavenly Father would see, and that's what would have an enduring value. There's too much of self involved if you're exposing it too much to the eyes of others, and that's true of almsgiving uh, as well as one's prayer life. That all th these things would be done behind closed doors. Now certainly we pray in common together as, as a community, celebrate Mass together, but these personal disciplines are not something that we would broadcast publicly. In some ways the, the disciplines when they are broadcast publicly, it seems like, you know, in this group, if you're in this setting, yeah, it would be a bad thing. But in the world, it's almost, it does carry an additional burden, you know, as long as ashes on your forehead, it's everyone calling attention to the fact, oh, you got up early and went to church today. You know, how weird. You know, there's something that is a mortification in that. And it's not something like showy that it would be like, hey, look at me. I'm, you know, I've been eating for three days, you know. Right. Well, there can be. And I think that's where, why the church leaves the option of wearing the ashes throughout the course of the day or washing, washing them off. Uh, I think the thing we don't want to happen is it to be, you know, sort of Catholic identity day or where everybody sees who the Catholic is across campus because they have a big smudge on, on their forehead. I think there has to be a kind of catechesis there why, why we are doing it. And I think where we know that that is failing is that when, when people come to Mass and they want to receive the ashes but then will leave before the end of Mass, they won't stay to receive what gives hope. They won't stay to receive the Holy Eucharist. Or they'll call and ask, when are ashes being given out? Or are they being given out you know, outside of Mass, as if they're receiving a special gift, something unique or more important than the Eucharist. And so certainly I wouldn't have any problem with someone 
wearing them, but I think doing that in the right spirit would be important. They would guard your heart to make sure that it's not just to show that you are Catholic on a specific day. Same thing is sort of true on Palm Sunday as well. You know, the church is packed, but you're getting something different. You're getting a palm to make a little cross of, which we usually find hundreds of in the chapel after the Mass, which makes you wonder what they're doing during the Mass. <laughs> so. But right, so you know, we don't want to hide our faith. But I think there is you know, a danger of holding it up for mockery if people see behind that a kind of hypocrisy where it doesn't jive with the rest of our life, that we're just embracing these external mortifications throughout this period of time, and then they see everybody doing the things that they typically would do, you know, where there isn't a kind of conversion of life that is reflective of this recognition of our, our mortality. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Okay, top of the next page. We must, as the Holy Master admonishes us, beware of taking disciplines or doing similar things without permission of our confessor. For whoever does this on his own judgment should know that, according to the opinion of the Holy Master, he will injure his constitution or become proud, thinking that he has done some great thing, and he subjoins this maxim, that true perfection consists in captivating our own will and acting, and acting according to that of our superiors. He was thus wont to tell his people that he made no account of abstinences, fast, or anything else performed in self-will, but they must be careful to mortify their reason, even in little things, if they hope to overcome in greater things and make progress in the path of virtue. These bodily disciplines must be made with discretion, since the Holy Master warns us that the devil sometimes cunningly incites spiritual men to penance and to bodily austerities, to that end, to the end that, by performing them indiscreetly, they may weaken themselves in such a way that either they can no longer attend to works of greater profit, or else that terrified by the illnesses that they incur, they may abandon their accustomed exercises and turn their backs on the service of God. So that's an interesting point uh, in that last phrase, that if we uh, practice these things in an indiscriminate way and we find ourselves weakened too much, you know, people often say they get crabby when they fast or they get weak and things like that, they, or perhaps they feel sick, that is if fasting isn't embraced slowly over time where the body has an opportunity to adjust to it, then they can experience these negative bodily effects. Or if they do it in a radically indiscreet way and fall into some serious illness, then after that they become frightened of embracing these ascetical disciplines. And I think we can see that more and more in our culture. We've become sort of a, a culture of hypochondriacs you know, every little ache or pain that we feel, we're taking something for it. Or, you know, or we go to multiple doctors because we're, you know, we're fearful for our, our, our health. And so, you know, more and more we seek to exempt ourselves from spiritual disciplines. 
even all the while we are very much focused on the body and health. We'll exercise, we'll be very careful about our diet. There was an app for the iPhone, what, something about enough uh, the water, it gauges the amount of water you drink during the day. Both Father Drew and I are A-plus water drinkers. <laughs> but we'll, we'll do things like that. But uh, again, when it comes to uh, connecting this to the spiritual life, we can become very timid about that or think that, well, if I do fast, I'm, not, I'm going to feel weak and so not be able to do my daily duties in the way that I would like. We, we lose this kind, because we have done it so episodically now over time, the practice of these disciplines, we lose an insight into the fruit that they bear in our lives, not just how hard they are, but how they do deepen our prayer life, how they do deepen our capacity to love, how they'll bear the fruit of greater chastity, the ability to control our, our desires. All of these things, perhaps we've never tasted or experienced, so we, we lose that trust that these spiritual disciplines will have any effect in our lives, especially if we only practice them a few times during the season of Lent. Because mo most often we'll experience the negative effects. And we'll tell ourselves, we'll rationalize, I just can't do that. I become too weak. I become too tired. I can't do my work. I become crabby. I get bad breath. You know, why should I, why do I want to fast? And so Philip, I think, had this insight that he picked up from the Desert Fathers that these are things to be practiced regularly so that they can become a normal part of our spiritual life. And it's only over the course of years and decades that we begin to see the fruit of these things in our spiritual life. There are no quick fixes for us, and I think that's what we want. If we take up a practice, we want to see ourselves as spiritually uplifted or having you know, a, a very positive spiritual experience. And when we feel our bodies humbled by that, we don't like the experience and we can't make the connection there with what it's really doing within our hearts. That the humbling of the body helps to bring about the humbling of the mind and the heart. And then it makes us more uh, open to the working of God's grace in our lives or more attentive to Him. And so for all of these disciplines, we want to take the long view of saying, okay, I might take this up gradually, but I want it to become a regular part of my uh, spiritual life and avoid the extremes, but allow the dis discipline to develop over the course of years. And again, this was the good thing about Philip staying in Rome. And I think the nice thing about an oratory, too, that the, the priest will stay in one house until they die. And so they can engage those who come to the oratory over the course of decades and allow those practices to grow and develop and help people move to, along that path of holiness with a greater clarity. You know, there can be, uh, it can be hard for, I think, a priest who's moved around every few years when all of a sudden you have a couple thousand people you're responsible for uh, and are coming to confession to offer any spiritual counsel that isn't the most basic kind of counsel because you don't know the person's heart. It's only over time that you develop that ability through this knowledge, knowledge of the other, and then it becomes a very powerful relationship.
Any questions on this section? One, yes. Thinking as you're talking, would there be such a thing that I might term a reverse discipline? And here's what I'm thinking of. I'm remembering my mother. Um, my mother had ten children, mm -hmm. and every day of her life, she took a nap. Mm -hmm. Now, some might say, "Wow, what a luxury!" Sluggard. That's right. Well, and she it was a discipline. Right. She could have done something else with that half hour. Or a discipline, so or such a thing as that, where you actually have to be kind to yourself in order to do what you do better. Well, a dis it was a discipline, or simply wisdom, that her whole life was probably asceticism, taking care of a big family, attending to everybody's needs in love and charity. And she probably went without a lot of sleep many times and probably didn't eat, you know, a full dinner for years, you know, and taking care of children. And so taking a nap and being aware of the needs of the body becomes very important. But if she would have pushed through that without giving her body rest, then she could have not, she could have hurt herself so much that she couldn't have attended to the works of charity, taking care of her own, own family. And so I think we do want to have a kind of wisdom in, that guides our practice, that we don't you know, weaken ourselves so much, especially for those of us living in the world where our schedule isn't going to be that of a desert father who would, you know, you know they would do a, a, a sort of a manual labor, but nothing that would be in an extreme. And so they wouldn't be putting in these long days of work. And certainly they wouldn't have the the, the dis disciplines that would be that of a mother taking care of her children. And so the bodily fasting that they could engage in in the desert would be much greater than the fasting of someone living in the world. And so uh, this is what we would have to think through. You know, what does it mean, you know, guided by the Council of Philip Neri, to uh, renew our faith through the spiritual tradition that teaches us that we need to have both exterior and interior mortification. But how do we do that living in the world? Where we're not afraid of it, but we take it up in a way that is consistent with our station in life. And I think this is where Philip was particularly good, that he didn't deal with people as a block and give everybody the same discipline. He could engage the individual and see what they, they needed. Any other thoughts? Yes. Just an interesting thing about um, talking about women doing excessive uh, spiritual disciplines indiscriminately. Honestly, the first thought that came to my mind was Martin Luther because that was one of the things I remember he complained about was that it's like he went and did these excessive penances and broke his health, even though I know it was kind of at the contrary to the advice of a spiritual right. father that. You know, there's sort of a little bit of a warning there to where right. it's like he seemed to be somebody who meant well, but then ended up kind of creating this animosity toward the church. Right. Yeah, that would be the most extreme example that to take up something indiscriminately and then find oneself still struggling with particular vices because you went your own path and so there was a pride behind it. 
and usually when there's pride behind certain practices, we'll experience a fall, and that will be repeat itself cyclically. And so if he was being self-guided at that point, then a kind of resentment begins to develop towards the church or a questioning of the value of those spiritual disciplines. And you wonder if someone of good counsel came along and was able to guide how, with, how different that path could have been. I think in our day and age, though, I think we've just moved away from the language altogether, and recapturing it for ourselves is something that's important. We understand it on a human level, and I think that's where we have to begin. We practice this in every other area of our life. So it's not as though this should be difficult for us to communicate to ourselves or to others. So we do this in every single aspect of our life, and so why wouldn't we do it in the spiritual life as well? especially when it's the most important thing for us, our relationship with God. Let's just read this last paragraph and then go on to an interior mortification, which is a good bit shorter. But although these bodily mortifications are commended and inculcated, the Holy Master, nevertheless, in order to show the far greater advantage of interior mortification, said that we must not attach ourselves to the means as to forget the end, which is charity, the love of God, and the mortification of the understanding, and that it avails far more to mortify a passion, however small it may be, than to use many absences, fast, and disciplines. And he more highly esteemed those persons who, attending moderately to the mortification of the body, used all the diligence in mortifying their will and understanding, even in little things, than those who gave themselves up entirely to corporeal rigors and austerities. And you can see that in, it, in his teaching, that you know, he knew and would often test people when there was a reputation there for great physical austerity, that he would put them to the test in regards to their humility, and often it would immediately be revealed if they could not be humbled in small, some small way, some small slight. He knew that their fasting was doing them no good at all, and so that they needed to make some adjustment in their spiritual life. And this is what he goes on to talk about in internal mortification. He was accustomed to say, the sanctity of a man lies within the space of three fingers. And when he said this, he touched his forehead and then added in explanation, the most important thing of all is to mortify the understanding. Is it rationale? Is that the Italian? Rationale. Rationale. A word very familiar with him. This rationale is to be mortified in small things if we desire to overcome the greater and to make progress in the way of virtue. The saint frequently repeated, My sons, mortify yourselves in little things that you may hereafter be able to mortify yourselves in greater by the mortification of the rationale, St. Philip means, as the good disciple Alessandro Fidele explains it, that a man must contend against himself and conquer his own affections, subjugate his passions, and never do his own will excepting under obedience. Baronius used to say in reference to this subject, nothing is so pleasing to God as the renunciation of our own will. On other occasions, the Holy Master explained the point in question by saying, A man must not reason too much. He must not reason anything. He must not play the prudent. 
so this is sort of an interesting thing. And as I was reading it, I was uh, thinking again of married life and say having ch children that you know, moment to moment, often there is a kind of mortification of understanding and reason that has to take place. You know, children often aren't very reasonable <laughs> and or will do things in accord with their own will. And it's not as though you can walk away and do your own thing. You have to attend to what is necessary there, taking care of someone who is helpless. And so within that life, there is the greatest kind of mortification, and it, but it has to be something that's embraced and embraced joyfully. I heard uh, a married man once say, when asked, you know, after having a uh, first child, well, how are you enjoying being a father? And he said, well, not having as much fun anymore. <laughs> and I think it was that it so radically changed his life that he couldn't see within it the joy <clears throat> that should arise, that in the giving of the self, of taking care of a, of a child. Certainly, there's not going to be the entertainment that was once there, but now there should be the joy of raising a child. And that might be very, there are aspects of that that are tremendously difficult, staying, you know, waking up multiple times during the night, changing diapers, you know, you're not going to have these great vacations you know, but you're going to have to, you know, talk baby talk for, for years. And so you're not going to have date night for many years to come. And so there is a kind of mortification and spiritual discipline with, right within the married life that leads to extraordinary sanctity if it's embraced and embraced with a kind of joyfulness. But again, that has to be a discipline that's taken up consciously you know, with this specific intention that I, I see this, the beauty of it, as well as the difficulty. And I know that I'm going to have to struggle at times when I experience that irritation within me or that part that doesn't want to do it or wants to simply fulfill my own will. And where I set that will aside, I become obedient to the reality of fatherhood or motherhood. I become obedient, as it were, to that little child and do what I, I need to do. And if you think about that, that's far greater than fasting or keeping vigils that you would choose on your own. There's no will involved in that at that point. And this is what Philip is saying is the greatest benefit for those who are living the religious life or who are living lives as oratorians. That to, to do this within community, to let go of that kind of reason and understanding that we will cling to uh, is, is the more difficult thing to do. And so it goes on to say, the holy master so highly valued this virtue of mortification that he always had on his lips the sentence of St. Bernard to despise the world, to despise no one, to despise oneself, to despise being despised. Now, this warrants, I think, a moment of pause to, to consider what he's saying there, to despise the world in the, in the sense of the things that are contrary to God, those things within the fallen world that would pull us away from the life that Christ has won for us, so that we would come to despise and have a kind of hatred for sinfulness or the things that would lead us into sin that we would despise no one, so we wouldn't direct that kind of hatred for sin 
towards others. We have a tendency, I think, when we begin to enter into our spiritual life more fully, and we begin to look at our own sins and weaknesses, that will shift that gaze to our spouse or our community member and say, he's so lazy. Or, the, you know, these, these things will see when we should be gazing at, at our, ourselves. The Desert Fathers called it the insensitive power that we would become incensed, as it were, with our sins. And it's what leads us to cut them out of our lives. It's what rises up within us that creates that kind of anger for anything that would pull us away from God. But unredeemed, untouched by the grace of God, we will direct it to another. And it can be the sharpest of instruments. We'll know where the chinks in the armor are, and we'll, we'll stick the, the sword in. And so despise no one. When we're engaged in the spiritual life, our struggle has to be focused upon ourselves, not in correcting others. Despise, to despise oneself, you know, again, to set aside one's own will. There is a kind of poverty of spirit that belongs to us as Christian men and women, that we don't go the way of the world, that we do set aside our own willfulness and the pursuit of you know, worldly joys for the sake of something greater. And sometimes that comes at a great cost. Jesus tells that, uh, or offers that teaching, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That there are certain things that we are going to have to cut out of our lives that might bring us a kind of joy or pleasure in the world, but that we know that leads us into sin. And so we will have to do what others might not be willing to do, cut, cut off a hand. And so, better to enter into the kingdom, he said, with one hand than with both to enter into the fires of Gehenna. And so this, this is what Bernard and Philip would mean when they say, despise oneself, that we are willing to make sacrifices that we know are, are going to be costly to us on some level. This is going to hurt, and we have to be prepared for that. Whenever a doctor says that to you, by the way, that's when you know when to be scared. <laughs> this is going to hurt. <laughs> I've only had one doctor say that, and indeed it was true. <laughs> to despise being despised, and I think this is the most important one. We can take, as we engage in the spiritual life and move further along, we can begin to take a kind of uh, pleasure in this self-mortification of seeing ourselves as being ascetics or religious individuals and or uh, being held in contempt by the world for our embrace of Christianity. Spies being despised. That we can't allow ourselves even that pleasure. We can become prideful in our Christianity rather than being able to look at others with love. We can sort of place a barrier between ourselves and others. They hate me, so, you know, fine. You know, I'll, I'll keep my, I'll stay in my own place, and they can have their own life. You're on your own. And our Christian faith doesn't allow that. The mortification that we're called to means that, you know, even when despised, we don't give ourselves over to that in a kind of spiritual pleasure that allows us then to reject others or take pleasure in it.
Any thoughts or comments so far? When a person is accused of what he has not done, he must mortify himself by making no reply or excuse. The Holy Master was extremely displeased when anyone excused himself, for he said that anyone who really desired to become a saint ought accepting in some few cases never excuse himself, but always to acknowledge himself as being in fault, although he should be unjustly blamed. And he used to call self-excusing persons, my Lady Eve. <laughs> in our lesser moments, we've been known to call each other this in the, <laughs> the community. My Lady Eve, excusing yourself. But, you know, I think that the teaching is gospel-oriented. You know, there are those in the gospel who seek to excuse themselves from the call of Christ to follow him. And the word excuse means it is, comes from ex causa, which means free from the charge. And whenever, so whenever we make an excuse for ourselves, we're trying to free ourselves from the charge, as it were, of being mortified in this way, from the charge of being called on to greater holiness of life, of letting go of our self-esteem. If we get into a brawl every time someone says a sharp word to us or, you know, reads something that we did in the harsh, interprets it in the harshest fashion, we're going to be fighting all the time. And so to maintain a kind of peace, charity within the within a house or in a home, you know, also, it's often best to mortify the, the reason, the understanding, and say, okay, I know the truth here, but my sense of self is strong enough that I don't have to defend myself at the cost of a breakdown of charity or a further breakdown of charity. I could let it be and then, then move on. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, we want to, our natural uh, movement is to try to defend ourselves. When we're attacked, we, we draw inward uh, instead of allowing ourselves to receive that and, and not send it back more fully charged with hatred or anger. This is what Christ is on the cross. He's able to receive the sin of the world and all of its consequences and its fullness. And what is returned is love and life. Whereas we have a tendency to take the harsh words that people say to us, we'll nurture it within, we'll nurse it into a fuller life, and then we'll give it back both barrels to them. And so what Philip is saying is, no, you have to st stop that. You have to stop that cycle that can grow into deep resentment and then even into a kind of hatred. And so th this is, you could see in our day-to-day -day life, this interior mortification. If we were aware of this, there would be no lack of opportunity for us to be, to be embracing mortification to embrace this kind of asceticism. Any thoughts about that? Any way that we might need to clarify that a little bit? I see some consternation there about well, taking the blame. It, well, yeah, that's what the question is about. I mean, we have a responsibility to truthfulness, so, you know, where do you draw the line? I mean, this acknowledging being at fault, I think, is, could be taken a couple of ways, but if somebody tells me you broke that, I'm going to say, no, I didn't. Right? Okay. I think when it involves the good name of another, 
defending the truth in that regard, mm -hmm. or perhaps say of a community or a family where there's a larger issue at hand. You know, I think in our day-to-day -day life, there are thousands of ways where we can embrace this mortification, but I, I think there were circumstances where Philip thought that you would have to stand up to protect another or to protect a greater truth. What about an instance of like committing, you know, you're accused of committing some serious sin or crime like theft, adultery, murder, well, there, there can be heroic virtue in that. And, you know, Christ was condemned as a lawbreaker, crucified as, you know, a criminal. And the example that always is strongest to me is that of uh, Lorenzo Scopoli. He wrote the book Spiritual Combat. And he was accused of infidelity, uh, you know, breaking his vows that he had... Uh, uh, that he had molested a woman, and it was a false accusation, and he was stripped of his <coughs> priesthood, but he remained in his community, the Theatines. This is right, right around the time of Philip Neri, a little bit before, and he remained in his community as a brother, and it was only a few months before his death that it came out that it was a false accusation, and his priesthood was restored to him. But he wrote one of the most beautiful spiritual treatises, a classic within the life of the church during that period when he was suffering so greatly under this false accusation. And so, you know, certainly in, in instances of that there would have to be counsel, you know, both in terms of what would be prudent and, you know, what would be, you know, hurt the church perhaps or where one might have to defend oneself. But we can see there, I mean, that book has touched the lives of so many. It's said that he gave that book to Francis de Sales prior to Francis writing the introduction of the Devout Life. So these things are all connected and you think, gee, you know, he's affected the, you know, the salvation of so, so many through enduring that suffering and then in the midst of that suffering producing this extraordinary spiritual writing. A little louder, please. And what I thought of was another oratorium, was Newman. And, and he was being attacked. And the, the, but the thing is, what, what, what led him to write the Apologia was because, you know, over two main reasons. One, one he says, in, in, they're not just attacking me, they're attacking my oratory. They're attacking Catholic priesthood in general, right? Which is why why he yeah. that's you know. But he suffered for it. He was oh, yeah. he was accused and then yeah. convicted of slander. <laughs> so yeah, there was that before, but there's also um, right. Um, and Philip Neri too. I think oh, yeah. he's a great example. There there was a lot of jealousy and slander there, and there were times where he was stripped of the ability to offer the exercises at the oratory. So his name was dragged through the mud simply for jealousy's sake. And I think the distinction, a lot of all these cases we're discussing is between pleading no contest and claiming you're guilty falsely. So right, right. Taking, taking the punishment upon yourself. Right, right. Why don't we move on here just to the final paragraphs. If we must sometimes be employed in business repugnant to our own will, which seems contrary to human prudence, 
we should endeavor to mortify ourselves. Likewise, in conversation, a person may have a fitting exercise of mortification either by not telling anything which would result in his own praise or by feigning ignorance of what he knows. The more mortifications such as these are multiplied and repeated and touch us to the quick, the greater should be our cheerfulness of heart and receiving them. And again, these, may, these are little things, but they, they are, you know, I think we find them in our day-to-day -day life, that craving that we have within us for the praise of others. And, you know, to, to restrain our will in that regard, not seeking that, that praise or not being upset if we don't receive it for something that we've done and not, you know, balk at doing those kinds of work that, you know, we do find repugnant or difficult to do or don't match our skills and yet be able to do those things without complaint. And then finally, we should the more sedulously seek to acquire interior mortification, as St. Philip says, when anyone can break his own will and renounce the desires of his soul, he is in a good degree of virtue, and the not doing of this is the origin of many temptations. In that case, a person will be easily offended and break up a friendship, and will seldom be cheerful, but generally melancholy and disturbed at what happens to him. So taught the Master by word and deed, for it is recorded of him that by the exercise of mortification he had gained the entire mastery over his natural passions, and he had disciples so truly mortified that they relished the fruit of mortification. And so there's no like static or neutral territory for us in the spiritual life. If we aren't seeking to mortify ourselves in these small ways, then um, our capacity to love can be diminished. And I, I thought it was sort of a fearful or fierce thing to say that when we don't mortify these things, they can have an effect on friendships where they break apart, you know, because we haven't been willing on some level to exercise this kind of mortification, that we've let things get under our skin to such an extent that resentments develop and then even hatred, and so there's a breakup of, of relationships. Or that a person falls into a kind of melancholy that makes the spiritual life very difficult to live. The Philip always thought that a cheerful person would, it was easier for a cheerful person to make spiritual gains. Those who suffered from melancholy often found it very difficult to, to live this, the spiritual life. And I think it's why we see him give the mortifications that he did. You know, those things that would bring people out of themselves or out of that melancholy, you know, where they would have to laugh at themselves in, in some way. And once they are freed of that, you know, self-esteem, you know, or that ego, then there's a kind of deep personal freedom that comes, that, that one can sort of go with the flow of life and not be bent out of shape at every, every trial that comes down the road. And so, you know, Philip, I think, is one of the best spiritual teachers in that regard. He's often not seen that way because he destroyed his writings. What we gain, what we come to see, though, in examining his life and the life of his disciples is we see a man who really knew how to lead people in the best, best way. He knew the human heart well. 
so that he could give the guidance that was necessary. Any final thoughts or comments? Yes. Well, a saying or reflection, but I'm not sure who it was Ignatius or the sales about how a humble man would not fear praise because he knows that praise belongs to God. And so would that mean that he would not necessarily like endeavor to try to hide up any good that he does because Right. Yeah, Mother Teresa, you know, multiple times was told, you know, you're a saint, you know, and could receive that for what it was and not be let into pride because she knew her own poverty and her need. But, you know, her life was deeply ascetical, you know, it began every day with Mass and a holy hour, and so she knew where the grace came to do the work that she was doing as well as the, any sanctity that she might have. So she could receive that, not for herself, but, you know, as a glory given to God. So there wasn't a need there for her to correct the person. Any other thoughts? Any of the fathers or brothers want to add anything? Father Drew from your <laughs> 40 years of common life. Well, when we, uh, we'll, we often will close, or we typically close with the prayer to St. Philip. This is written by uh, Baronius, who was mentioned in the first reading, one of Philip's early disciples. So if you want to stand. And let us pray. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility, to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those kindly eyes of thine from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted, so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek prey. To Thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender. Undertake the cause of our salvation. Protect Thy clients. To Thee we appeal as our leader. Rule Thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To Thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of Thine, and place as Thou art on high. Keep us off all the rocks of evil desires, that with thee for our pilot and guide we may safely come to the port of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Our closing hymn is, O God, Beyond All Praising. Father Drew, would you like to attend us? Beyond all praising, we worship you today, and sing the love amazing that songs cannot repay, for we can only wonder at every gift you send.
lift our hearts before you and wait upon your word. We honor and adore you, our great and mighty Lord. Then hear, O gracious Savior, accept the love we bring, that we who know your favor may serve you as our King. Sacrifice.